0: Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas in social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Today, we are talking empathy as a force multiplier with Ryan Pintado-Wertner. Ryan's the CEO of Smoketown, a boutique consultancy that was built to help early stage and emerging brands across the natural products industry reach their full potential. The reason I'm so excited to talk with Ryan, well, there's a few actually. I heard him speak at a Big Path CEO series earlier this year, and I knew I needed to get to know him better. He and I both believe in supporting and building brands with purpose and building a world that is more vibrant and better able to support all people well into the future. He and his team at Smoketown tackle this work in the natural foods industry, whereas our team at Mission Partners tackles it in the social impact and philanthropic sector. Today's conversation is going to be so good because we are talking about how issues of empathy, justice, and civility stretch across sectors And the reason why we must all, regardless of our industry, be committed to building back better. Ryan, I am so glad to have you with us today on Mission Forward. I'm going to start where I start a lot of these conversations, and it's on values. You help brands build their businesses around their values. But we're going to start with yours. How did your values lead you to this work?
1: I'm glad that you started there because it is kind of where I naturally... Tend to start this conversation. Um, I grew up in a family that was um, middle class. Uh, you know, sometimes more comfortably than others, but you know, generally, I, I had an upbringing where I was blessed to to largely not really have to worry about money as, as a kid. And uh, but that wasn't really true for uh, much of my extended family. And so one of the things that I noticed about myself early on is that when we would have conversations at the dinner table about, you know, family members that were in need or layoffs that had happened or, you know, whatever it was that was going on, um, I had a level of frustration and disappointment with that uh, from a place of that just that shouldn't be true, like people shouldn't be going through that, that tuned me in relatively early to being fairly highly empathetic where I just, you know, other people's problems pretty quickly became something that I thought about and worried about. Similarly, around the different dinner table with my grandfather, um, we he would tell these epic stories about uh, growing up in the South. And specifically, uh, my grandfather grew up in a neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky called Smoketown. Uh, that is uh, one of, if not the oldest Black neighborhood in Louisville. Uh, he grew up, for those who know it, um, right a- almost exactly across the street from uh, University of Louisville Hospital. And, uh, in fact, he and my grandmother lived in that same shotgun house, um, that he grew up in for, um, for the early part of their marriage too. And he would tell me these stories that were just sometimes too crazy to be believed of the kinds of things that he saw, what he went through. I applied a race analysis and a, and a power analysis, even at a relatively young age, kind of. at at the level of my intuition to stories that he framed as this is how hard we worked or this is how crazy it was or let me tell you a time when um and all that put put together uh just turned me into an activist relatively early in life you know my first I, i read the autobiography of malcolm x changed Changed my life. Read a whole lot of stuff, but the first action I took as a you know, with the action part of the word activism, was uh, when I was, uh, I think I was fifteen. I was in high school, and it was it was the rod, it was the Rodney King verdict, and uh, got you know got active at my local high school around you know organizing a response to that. So um, what what brings me to to this work and what kind of motivates me in general is that my response to being fairly high on the, on the empathy scale is that I have to do something about this stuff. Different people have different ways of dealing with that, right? Um, my way of dealing with, with feeling other people's pain and other people's problems is that I have to do something to, to, to stop those problems from being real.
0: Having you tell that story and realizing that you and I were probably in high school around the same time, and mm. the stakes seemed high then. The stakes have seemed high many, many times since then. And then here we are now, and I could have never imagined the stakes being any higher than they are now, right? In the right. the moment that we are in, reflecting on this year of 2020, on how many things have come to pass and, and bubbled up all at once,
1: I've been really wrestling with that question, I'd say, I mean, literally in the last, call it 48 hours. And, you know, is it that the work is more important and urgent or is it that some things that had always been true or that had been true for A decade or more, and had been sort of just below the surface, are now simply being expressed through the vessel of an entirely undisciplined and incredibly blunt, you know, chief executive, who will shamelessly challenge, channel the rage that was already there, the 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 depth of the problem. He's just he's he's a more willing vessel than any prior you know, or th- than any president that you and I grew up with has been willing to be like, he's been, he's willing to be a vessel. You tell me what I need to say. And I will literally say exactly that thing. unfiltered.
0: You say vessel, I say puppet, but yes.
1: <laughs> right. So what I, what I wonder is, is, um, is, is the, ur- is, is it, is it true that the, that the work is more urgent or is it that the urgency of the work is more obvious because you have the, this Highly public dynamic or that 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 lays bare whatever we might have uh, not fully accepted as a nation.
0: That could be. A, that's a great question and an important one. And perhaps now the world is more primed for the work that must be done, for the work that should have been done. And here we are, and we'll we'll take it. Right, we will take it, and we will move it forward. The fact that you do it not singularly, but so critically through the lens of empathy. Right, you are. Thinking every day about how do we move this work, how do we move this brand forward, not in a way that this business wants or this leader wants, but in a way that the world needs. And you know, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that too—the power of looking at all you do, at the decisions that you make, at the way you counsel your your clients through that lens of empathy, and what really happens when you shift and make that fully your focus.
1: Mm-hmm. I I got lucky. In that, you know, had we had this conversation, you know, uh, 15 years ago before I changed into a career in marketing, I probably wouldn't have been very articulate about empathy as the thing. I would have explained how I'm wired and with some other language that that probably got at the same notion, but I don't think I was as clear-eyed about that specific concept until I uh joined uh the the consumer packaged goods industry and uh what and specifically i just was you know had had the incredible luck and blessing to work at the clorox company at a time when they made a a principle or a, a framework called design thinking they made it mandatory for people like me you know so i was a uh, up and coming I think by that point, I was, I think I was still an associate in the marketing organization and the brand organization. Uh, they basically said, you have to get good at design thinking in order to advance in this organization. And the luck of that is that it, for my money, uh, design thinking, for those who may not be as familiar with it, is one of the most viable, powerful concepts in in business or not just actually to 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 constrain it to business is inappropriate it's one of the most powerful constructs i've ever encountered for problem solving you know and and the the the, among other pieces to what design thinking means you know one of the things that you do in design thinking very explicitly is you obsess over the problem that you're solving in people's lives you know, if you look at a design, that's sort of like a typical design thinking roadmap recession. Easily half of your time invested in the whole project could be just in understanding at a nuanced level what problem are we solving in people's lives, and they and they name that empathy. So what happened for me was I got a chance to work at a company and get trained in a discipline and with some language that named something empathy that I had always felt intuitively, but had not necessarily sort of had the discipline or the structure to to turn into such a powerful tool. And so when you fast forward to where I am today... What I now know, having been in the uh, consumer brands world for uh, 13 some odd years now, is that uh, empathy, the ability to really understand uh, the, the problem that a brand or a product or a service solves at nuanced level is a game changer in terms of unlocking that business's value. Because what it means is you will, you're more likely To not just build an exceptionally good solution to the problem, but you're more likely to be able to get to language and framing and branding and architecture. And, you know, the whole process is going to reflect your deeper understanding of what people are actually going through, which will increase loyalty, increase trial, you know, raise competitive barriers that make it hard for knockoffs to to match your level of insight. And so it, 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 where I come at empathy or as a, as a kid and sort of becoming an adult, I came at empathy and the out, And the outward expression of that empathy was to change the world from an activism standpoint. Marketers and Mm -hmm. design thinkers and innovators come in empathy and the outward expression of that is to build great stuff that actually works. And so what I've, you know, sort of stumbled into at this stage of my career in building Smoketown is to sit, to lay those two, those two things at an intersection and it works out that empathy powers both the purpose and the 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 and the business model success
0: yeah and um what you didn't say although I think you implied is the other thing about design thinking is it allows you to challenge your assumptions and challenge where bias lies right in terms of saying this is what we think the solution is it doesn't matter what we think the solution is we've got to figure out how people perceive this brand and connect with the brand and value the brand and and truly understand it right empathy at, at the deepest level is is also removing a lot of that bias and assumption in the process too very true so that's going to bring us to a conversation that um i think we've ha- been independently having in our in our circles and i want to bring us together on it and it um perhaps the the uh tie to it all to design thinking and the way business runs i'm going to take us back for a minute to a New York Times article, essay probably more likely than an article, but that Milton Friedman wrote 50 years ago this year, um, when he wrote that business exists to increase profits, and how challenged uh, that that idea has become. Right, so here we are 50 years later, finally deeply wrestling with the role that business plays. And reinforcing bias, reinforcing assumptions, reinforcing racist policies and systems, and you know, taking it, taking it further, really keeping Black, Brown, and Indigenous people out of the boardroom, and quite frankly, out of far too many rooms on their way to an executive office. But we are here in this moment in 2020, where B-corporations, where purpose-driven companies like ours, where mission-driven leaders are pushing back, saying business as usual hasn't worked, And we can't keep doing it the way that we're doing it. I want to hear a little more about what your take is on this moment that we're in and what it feels like to be leading a purpose-driven business at this time.
1: One of the critical dynamics that explains where we are and the tipping point that it feels like we've reached is demography. It's that the two youngest generations, Gen Z uh which is where my i've got uh two teenagers so like my teenagers generation and the kids a little uh, young folks a little, a little older than them and then millennials who are a couple of years younger than me at the sort of high end of it at the o- oldest end of it they are demographically the the most g- diverse generation in in history uh they have access to more information than any generation in history uh they uh the the things that shaped them if you think about the major, like look at the last 20 years and name the things that shaped the last 20 years, it are, it are, it's a lot of stuff that cuts to the heart of what it, what works and doesn't work in America. You know, the, the Great Recession, uh, now we've got COVID-19, um, school shootings, like you, you you run the list of stuff that these folks have grown up with as true and... What it leads to, while, you know, it's, of course, there's, there's a a, a bell curve, a sort of political perspective, and it's not true that every millennial or Gen Zer is a progressive, their tendency towards certain progressive ideas, I know for a fact, because, you know, one of the things Smoketown does is consumer research, I have seen firsthand is, is higher, like they are more likely to lean into, um, Progressive expectations for how the economy should work better uh, and, and, and progressive expectations for the role that uh, corporations play in civil society. And uh, so, so the, the problems have been largely the same you know, it, 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 there's progress here and there and there's backtracking here and there, but in general, you know, the underlying, uh, racist structure of the American economy and, uh, the, the gender impacts, all the things that we can talk about. It's not like those things are new. Um, they've been there all along. Corporations have been there all along with the sort of sometimes on, sometimes off relationship to those challenges. For my money, the, the big X factor or the big thing that that shifted the the dynamic is the are those two generations and so when what that means for us and how we think about this moment and how you know philanthropists in, in the audience and, and your, your clientele should think about this moment is actually precisely that there's nothing uh this is not a moment at all like what what this is is a building up of the increasing power influence uh, role of generations that have uh, totally different expectations of, of the corporations that they interact with as they build purchasing power, as they become more and more, a greater and greater percentage of the electorate, as they come of age, as they have kids. What we're seeing right now is simply going to accelerate. Like I think you can, if someone were to plot a graph That showed the popularization of activism and dissent and uh, figured out how to how to track its rate of speed. It it is accelerating and it's accelerating, I bet, exactly um, correlated to the percentage of the U.S. population that those age cohorts represent.
0: The power of, of young people to, to challenge and, and uh, shift structures, right? It's always been that way, but you're exactly right, that the demographics, the, the power of that voice now is greater than it's ever been, the diversity of that voice.
1: And they've been through some things that, that simply didn't give them the option to accept the American dream narrative at face value. I mean, if you're a millennial and uh, you are on the younger end of being a millennial, your formative years, like your formative experience was big banks, you know, got greedy, kicked a, you know, historic hole in the economy, didn't, didn't suffer the consequences. Like that's, that's a formative thing. It's, just, it's as formative for them as nine eleven was for me, you know? Right. Um, right. so when that's your, 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 the way you, you, uh, come up. You're going to have to figure out how to define your identity and your your point of view relative to that fact. In some cases, maybe you s- sort of swing libertarian or swing, you know, the conservative into that. Well, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's an argument there or, or, or it swings the other way, like Bernie Sanders should be president of the United States. I mean, there is not another scenario. You, you go, you rewind the clock and I'm not a political science junkie. So there, if there are people in the audience who know this, they're going to maybe uh, chop it to pieces but i'm not sure that you can have a bernie sanders that comes this close to being president of the united states absent the demographic and the the resulting attitudinal dynamics that i just described i'm not sure that that i'm not sure that that that, that is viable without that
0: and what you're describing i mean you are seeing it in your consumer research you're seeing with your clients that and not just young people, but more and more people are voting with their wallets, right? They're determining what brands they want to be aligned with, what brands they don't. Um, they are not willing to walk away if a brand um, betrays them in some way. And what's interesting is we're seeing it less from a brand perspective and more again from a philanthropic perspective. So, you know, for a lot of young people who can recall their parents or their grandparents writing a check every week to a certain charity, right? That that process doesn't happen the same way anymore. That people want to be engaged in brands. They want to know what the philanthropy is doing to affect the systems that have been in place for so long and to challenge the systems that have been in place versus saying, we're going to keep writing that check to the same organization, even though, you know what, Poverty is exactly the same and, in fact, a lot of ways worse than it was 50 years ago, right? So maybe writing that simple check isn't really the answer anymore. So there's a lot for philanthropy and for nonprofits to be thinking about what's their role in all of this, too, just as you're thinking about it through the lens of what's brand's role.
1: Definitely. This is Erin Neal. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Mission Partners. If you're ready to take your organization, your program, or your big ideas to the next level in 2021, we can help. At Mission Partners, we work with high impact and high potential leaders who are ready to turn their good intentions into greater impact. Whether you need a fresh set of communications to make your message matter or a strategic communications plan to break through the clutter, our team can help you get there. Visit mission.partners for more information on
0: ways we can partner together to move your mission forward. We knew there were some really important reports that had come out late last year into this year before COVID-19 entered our consciousness here. There were calls from economists and experts who predicted that a recession, which folks knew was going to come, would disproportionately affect Black businesses in the U.S. and that making investments to bolster Black-led enterprises would be wise. Now, no one knew how close the time would come to COVID hitting and then what we would see as a result, right? So we know now, um, there's a report that came out earlier this summer, it was the National Bureau of Economic Research, that found the number of African-American business owners plummeted from 1.1 million in February of this year to 640,000 in Mm -hmm. April. That's a 41% loss in black owned businesses compared to 22% of businesses overall on the same time period. So I know you are working very actively in the moment. You have worked for a long time throughout your career to elevate BIPOC leaders in the national products industry and uh, i'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what you think needs to happen to level the playing field um whether that's in consumer products or otherwise but to ensure that black led and and bipoc leaders across all industries aren't just being set up to weather a storm because that's what i'm i'm concerned about but that they are set up to thrive beyond covid
1: you're right that uh, that there are um a significant number of black owned businesses uh, black founders in our client base and in our network more broadly. Uh, and it is definitely something that we're, uh, that we are, are focused on. And one of the biggest, uh, challenges with, um, building a business while black is access to capital. So, um, just to like throw some numbers around, uh, we did a survey of emerging consumer packaged goods brands in the natural products industry. Uh, I think the sample size was 120, something like that. Um, and it, we asked those founders a, a bunch of questions, including what's your source of financing? And because of uh, an emerging brand, you know, the one of the most important uh, hurdles that they must clear is ability to manage cash flow to bridge them from wherever they start to when they need to raise money, and then they must be able to raise money in order to get to the next threshold. It's like a pass fail situation. You more like shoots and ladders. You either raise money and keep moving forward, or nine times out of ten you fail to raise money and go out of business. Very stark, and uh, the majority. Were financed either by friends and family, or they were financed by uh, what we call the seed round, which is kind of like an angel investor that's early. Uh, and it, it, within that, the largest percentage were um, bootstrapped and and funded by friends and family. So um, take that fact, and that's and that that is broadly replicable. Take that fact and apply it to uh, what's true for the average um, black. Person in America, statistically speaking, uh, we are less likely to have wealth, less likely to own a home, less like. When you think of this, what are the literal sources of capital? Do you have an uncle that you can ask for money? From do you have a savings account? Do you own a home that you can take out a second mortgage against to as a source of financing? Add all of that stuff up. And one of the substantial issues is that there's just not access to capital. So, uh, one of the things that has to change in order for this to sort of balance the tip in the long run is that, uh, not only do we need to increase access to short term, uh sources of capital for uh in particular black uh, owned businesses but we also have to give black folks generally better access to wealth creating vehicles generally so that they have the asset base from which to grind out the 5 to 6 years of bootstrapping that's necessary to be an entrepreneur successfully so i'd say that that is like the number one, number two, and number three issue um, that needs to be addressed, and then uh, there's a, a second piece that is um, I think embedded in built in bias and failure to to follow the numbers on the in sort of the the broader consumer package goods landscape. I'm speaking still from the CPG lens, I guess. Ultimately, building a really successful business. Uh, and creating wealth by selling that business to a bigger company who sees its value. That order of operations only works if there's a big business on the other end of it that wants to buy your business. So let's think of one of my favorite brands, Oatly. You know, uh, oat milk brand, humongous business, um, not black owned, uh, but it's just a good case in, case in point. It, Oatly is on a path to create hundreds of millions of dollars in value, primarily because there is a capital market or there is a strategic acquisition on the other end of its growth, where they're going to be willing to write them a check that's worth five or six times the amount of money that that company is generating right now. That's how that, that's how that works. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a Black-owned business, and let's say your business initially is solving a problem, back to our earlier conversation about design thinking, you're solving a problem that Black folks disproportionately have, or that folks who are low-income disproportionately have, or whatever it is. If those problems are less valued by the market, like if the market's like what you know whatever like how are you going to build a business on black people like if that's the if that's their perspective well you're not going to get to the end of the of the of the, of the like there's not going to be someone on the other end who recognizes the value in what you've built and is willing to write you a humongous check for all the sweat and work that you put into it. so I think that's the other piece of it
0: and certainly not until right not until Wall Street changes <laughs> what Wall Street looks like right because we've got certain bias and assumptions baked in there in terms of who are we investing in and who are we not. Um, But an interesting trend maybe for for both of us to be watching is there is this trend that I'm starting to see of, of major foundations who have long invested in traditional nonprofit organizations who are now saying, we're going to invest in small businesses. We're going to invest in emerging enterprises. And um, and I think that's going to be interesting too, and how we start to think about other ways that wealth is distributed to ensure that there is enough capital for people with smart ideas and not enough resource to build that idea to be able to to grow that in a meaningful way.
1: Yeah, I think that's long overdue. You know, the the asset base of a Ford Foundation or a CS Mott Foundation or you know Serna, you f- fill in the blank. Foundation who have generally progressive values, they're sitting on an asset base where they could they could reallocate five percent of that asset base, right. not make a dent in the in the endowments sort of uh, long term viability, and five percent of that asset base invested in as a donor advised fund or in some other mechanism, invested in emerging brands who are both trying to make the world a better place and have the ability to shift wealth and power in certain communities,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. honestly, uh, they should have been doing this like a decade ago. It's long overdue.
0: Mm -hmm. And then you start to really see a trickle-down effect in workforce development, in community investment, yeah. right? It it starts first with making sure that Main Street is strong, right? Much less much less than Wall Street. Mm-hmm. We're coming to the end of our time. I had a really big question I wanted to ask you and I'm not sure we've got the time for it. So we might just touch on it and we'll see where we can go and maybe it sets us up for a second conversation if you're up for that. Cool. I've been listening to your podcast, A Blueprint, and I know recently you did you did a little uh, shout out, something that you were working on that I'm gonna set up here. Maybe we can we can tease it a little bit. But There are CEOs all over the country who are having similar conversations with uh, their peers as we are, but also with those in their own companies saying, what is our company's role in addressing big structural inequities? And I can think of no more important question, and I know you want every business to have an answer, um, that it's never been more important or urgent for leaders of companies to find their role in this fight against structural racism. So I want you to tell me a little bit about Blueprint. And how you're challenging businesses to dig into their role on structural racism? Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, we're we're doing that in a couple of different ways, and I'll I'll address it, and and uh, we'll either keep the conversation going in the future, or we'll get it all done here. Uh, so, one uh, way that we address it to your point is that I have a podcast called Brand New Blueprint, and what Brand New Blueprint is pretty much entirely about is talking to founders and CEOs pretty much exclusively about um, what their strategies have been to successfully build purpose-driven consumer brands. And sometimes we nerd out on business strategy. Sometimes we nerd out on purpose uh, and impact strategy. But what it all adds up to is these are um, passionate founders who are trying to figure out how to change the world. And uh, so that's what the podcast is about. And then um, we have a a, a service, and offering that we call the Big Fight. And what the big fight does is it, if you picture a Venn diagram, uh, one of the circles is growth strategy, you know, just generally, what does it take for me to get my $10 million business to be a hundred million dollar business or my $5 million business to be a $10 million business? The second piece that it answers. So the other circle that's intersecting is what's my impact strategy. If I'm committed to Helping dismantle institutional racism. What is concretely the way that I'm going to do that across all of the resources in my enterprise to know that I'm not just, you know, doing the occasional, you know, Instagram posts and feeling good about myself, but I'm actually moving the ball. I'm actually get gaining yardage. So sitting at the intersection of those two things and the overlap is what we call the big fight. And it's a service that blends the best of consumer brand strategy with the best of impact strategy and, 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 and knits it together to, to give a company a blueprint for how they can both grow the business and also increase their, the, the impact that their, that their enterprise has.
0: That's awesome. Well, I look forward to checking that out and I will make sure that we include some details on how folks can find that too. Awesome. Ryan, it has been so great to talk with you and to learn from you today. Thank you for being so generous with your time after what I know has been a really uh, busy day for you. And um, I hope we do get a chance to do it again soon.
1: It, this was, uh, it It was an honor. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, great conversation. I'm, I'm just really uh, uh, flattered to, to be part of this. So thank you.
0: Now, there's a few things that are going to stick with me from this conversation, but one that I want to reinforce before we wrap up is going right back to where we started and that's on empathy. It's at the heart of building brands with purpose, but it can't be forced and it can't be faked. If you want to build a brand with purpose, you have to start by building relationships honestly and authentically. Don't assume what your customers or clients want, but understand their needs and concerns and build from that perspective. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mission Forward. We're coming to the end of the season. And as always, I would appreciate your feedback on the show. Drop me a line at carrie.mission.partners. At and I look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of Mission Forward.